All right, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 46. If you want to go ahead and find that, open your Bibles. If you're using a Black Pew Bible, you can find it on page 39, Genesis 46. Now, I, I'll just confess with you, I struggle with trying to jive our sermon calendar with the regular calendar like, calendar, like holidays and things like that. And there's, there's sometimes this great pressure, like it's Mother's Day, so I've got to speak all about mothers, right? Well, we're not doing that this morning because in God's providence, he made sure that we are dealing with Genesis 46, which, though not specifically about motherhood, actually gives us some really uh, helpful and encouraging things about motherhood. Genesis 46 tells us the story of a family reunion. Now, if you've been with us the last few months as we've been going through the story of Joseph in Genesis, Genesis being the first book of the Bible, the story of Joseph is the last of the four major sections of Genesis. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, the Abraham, Father Abraham, the guy who got all the monotheistic religions started about 4,000 years ago. Joseph is the 11th born son of Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. Jacob had a crazy, messed up family. He had, he had four wives. He had uh, 12 sons. He had at least one daughter. And we'll see today that he ends up with all kinds of grandkids. His family, while being very productive also was really good at making strife, arguments, jealousy, hatred, even murder, selling a brother into slavery. There's, there's so much junk in the story of the family of Jacob that everybody in this room can look at and say, at least my family is not like Jacob's family. So no matter how discouraged you might be feeling this week, how overwhelmed you might be feeling as a mom or a dad this week, you can look at Jacob's family that Joseph comes out of, and you can say, at least it's not that bad. In the last few weeks, what we've seen is that though Joseph was hated by his brothers, who sold him as a slave, and then they thought they'd never see him again, he was taken as a slave to Egypt, where for 20 years he was basically under the radar. And then God raised him up, to be the the governor of Egypt, the second in charge under only Pharaoh himself. And so at that time, Egypt was the superpower. And so Joseph, the slave, has risen to be the second most important and influential man in the known world at that time. Why did that happen? God did that specifically in order to put Joseph in the position that he wanted him in for a particular calling to save the lives not only of his family, but of millions, perhaps, people around the world. See, Joseph was used by God to interpret two dreams that God had given Pharaoh. Those two dreams warned Pharaoh that in the next seven years are going to be great plenty, more food than you know what to do with. You practically don't have to work. The farms are just going to do it for you. But then the next seven years after that, It's going to be a famine like the world has never seen. And so Joseph is given the task of storing up extra food for seven years and then distributing it it during the the second seven years of famine. 
We saw how Joseph's family, not knowing that Joseph is governor of Egypt, the boys came, they bought food, Joseph tested him, he spoke harshly to him, he played a trick on him, all that stuff. They took the food home, they ate the food, they got hungry, they came back to get more food, bringing Benjamin, the youngest brother, with them, as Joseph had demanded. There was this big banquet, there was more testing and trickery and, and all this, and then finally, Joseph, he, he can hold it in no more. He can't keep it a secret. He can't control his emotions. The dam breaks. The emotions come flying out. And in tears, he says, I'm your brother. I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. And we saw how the brothers, at that point, shrunk back in fear. They pulled away from Joseph. Rightly so, because they had done evil to him. They knew that they deserved punishment. And yet, in what was a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ come to rescue us, Joseph moves towards his brothers and invites them into reconciled relationship. He gives them mercy. He forgives them. And he rescues them. He saves their butt again. He gives them all the food that they need. He gives them carts. He says, go home with the wagons. Get dad. Get all of the women and children. Bring him back here to Egypt because the famine still has five more years. I'll take care of you here in Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh promises that they will have the best of the best land in Egypt. Today, we pick up the story where um, the boys have gone home. They've shared the story with dad. They're packing up all their stuff. They're getting ready to come to Egypt as a family of about 70. Now, What I'd like to do is catch you guys up on where this is happening. So let's go to the first map. This teeny little sliver here, this oval, is where this whole story has been taking place. It's a tiny little chunk of the world. Yet God is using this small area, small, seemingly insignificant family, in a huge role in his master plan for all of Humanity. Now, if we go to the next picture here, this satellite image, you can see that this world is not like the world that we are used to. All of Northern Africa, almost all of the Middle East is just this giant brown desert land. Can you imagine living in a place like that? With this one very notable exception, that green triangle there, the the Nile Delta. That Nile River river is the lifeblood of Egypt today, as it has been for years. And, and, And just everywhere else is brown except for that snaking Nile River that then spreads out into the delta. That that promised good land of Goshen, where the Israelites are going to get to settle, is in that delta area, that green, lush area. Here are the main things, main areas that we're talking about today. Jacob and his family have been living in Hebron in what we would call Israel today. At the time, it was called Canaan. They're going to temporarily travel to Beersheba where they're going to worship God. Then they're going to head over to Egypt to the, what we would say, like the county of Goshen there in the Nile River Delta. This is where things are taking place. Let's go ahead and open the Word of God and let us feed ourselves on this story that was recorded for us by Moses more than 3,000 years ago. So this is Genesis 46, 1 through 34, page 39 in a pew Bible. So Israel, that's Jacob, 
took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to, to the God of his father, Isaac. Remember, we've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God revealed himself to Abraham and again to Isaac and then multiple times to Jacob saying, I am the one true God. I'm to be your God. I've chosen you as a special people, a special family, with special roles for you to play. Some of that worship, those conversations with God took place at Beersheba. And so on their way from Hebron down to Egypt, they passed through Beersheba and they paused to worship. Isaac, Joseph's grandfather, built an altar in Beersheba. And I am reasonably sure that now the family of Jacob has come with all of the sons and daughters and grandkids, and they are now worshiping at that same altar. Now, worship for them looked very different than worship for us. They would bring animals and sacrifice them on the altar. They would bring what would be their most valuable things, and they would give them as an offering to God. And if you think about the history of this family, this makes sense. They started with almost nothing. And then they had a lot, and then they had almost nothing again, and then they had a lot, and and God has taken care of them, God has blessed them, God has been with them through crazy twists and turns. Of course it makes sense that as they start off on this new section of their life, that they would stop, they would worship, and they would give thanks with a sacrificial offering. They're saying, God, everything that we have, all the success we have as a family, you have given it to us, and so we're going to worship you and we're going to give back to you. That's what they do there in Beersheba. Now, after the worship, the family sleeps. And lo and behold, God shows up again in a vision to Jacob. This has happened before. When he was fleeing from his brother, God showed up, gave them this vision of the ladder to heaven and the angels going up and down. Uh, When he was hiding for his life with his uncle Laban, God spoke to him, told him exactly how to breed the animals in order to make the, the, the flocks just explode in size. He told Jacob exactly when to leave his, his brother, his, uh, his uncle, and head back home. He intervened through a, uh, a dream through his uncle in order to make sure that his uncle didn't attack him. And as he came into the promised land, he had that amazing night where God himself showed up and wrestled with him. And we, we looked at that story a couple months ago, and we thought, this is so strange. And yet, it's a picture of our lives too. We struggle against God. We fight against God, and God mercifully wounds us like he did Jacob, and then he heals us, and he forgives us, and he has mercy on us. All of those things took place in these mysterious visions, and here we have another nighttime vision for Jacob. Verse 2. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, when I read this, this week getting ready for you guys, it struck me that there are, there are seven very clear statements and promises in this little speech that God gives. And it's almost as though God says, look, old man Jacob, I know you are tired. I know you think you're on the verge of death. I know you're afraid. 
And so let me remind you of some truths. First, he says clearly that he is God, the one true God. Secondly, he says, I'm that same God that your father and your grandfather have been worshiping and following all these years. I have been faithful to your family, even when your family was not faithful to me or to each other. I have been the God of your father and your grandfather. Then he says, don't be afraid. O precious old man Jacob, old and frail, don't be afraid. I know you're afraid to go to Egypt. I know you're afraid for the the reunion that's about to happen and you don't know what's going to happen with your kids and your grandkids. Don't be afraid. You can trust me. And then he says, specifically, you can trust me to keep my promises because I have promised you things in the past and I have kept them. Remember, I promised that you would be a great nation. That is going to be true. You are small now, but that promise still holds. The fifth thing God says in this section is that I will go with you to Egypt. So it's not like God is this little localized deity. Like all the other tribes around, they've got their little local deities. And they like make idols of them and carry them around with them. No, God is the God of all creation. He's the Lord over the land of Canaan. He's the Lord over the land of Haran, where Jacob was for a little while with his uncle. He's the Lord over Egypt. No matter where Jacob goes, God is with him. He says, I'm going to be with you. And then he also promises, I'm going to bring you out of the land of Egypt. Now, Jacob himself will die in Egypt. We'll see that in a couple weeks. But 430 years after this promise, the descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, will come out of Egypt in the story that we know as the Exodus, the second book in the Bible. 430 years of waiting for this promise to come true. I'm going with you into Egypt, and I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. 430 years is a long time to wait. And then finally, he tells Jacob that he is going to die, and that Joseph, his beloved son Joseph, will close his eyes. Joseph will be there for the death of Jacob. Now, these seven statements are easy for us to just fly over, especially if you're reading by yourself and you're kind of reading in your head, not reading out loud. You can just zoom zoom right over it. But I hope that as we paused and slowed down here, that this was an encouragement to you about how the sovereign God of the universe has been faithful and promises to continue to be faithful to this family and is faithful and will continue to be faithful to your family too. Because all of this is true for you And your family too. Moms, do you know that you are loved by God just as Jacob was loved by God? Do you know that your family is precious to God just as this precious family of Israel is valued dearly by God? Do you know that he has a plan, moms, for you and your family? Just like he has a plan for Jacob and this family. And you're plan's probably pretty different than Jacob's plan, but that's a good thing. God still has a plan for you and for your family. He is faithful to you. He will continue to be faithful to you, even when things are hard for your family. Verse 5, 
Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Just like we pointed out last week, this is amazing. This is God providing for his chosen people through the pagan king of Egypt who sent all the wagons and the things to carry him. God will use anybody to bring about his plans. Verse 6, they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now remember, Moses is writing this down 430, 440 years later, and the people that are going to first read this or hear it spoken by Moses they have probably been asking themselves lots of questions as they're wandering in the the wilderness after the exodus. Why are we here? Why were we in Egypt anyway? We're not Egyptians. We are Israelites. Where did we come from? How did we get to be a nation within a nation for God to then pull us out? And now they know the answer. They got to be a nation inside of a nation by Israel, their namesake, Riding in a wagon provided by Pharaoh himself 400 and some years earlier. That's how they got there. Now, a lot happens in those 400 years, but now they at least know why and how they're there. Now, this next section is a long list of names. We're not going to spend much time on it. We're mostly just going to zoom through it, make a couple uh, observations. But what we're going to do is take the family tree and explode it. So this Slide represents the family so far that we've talked about. You got Jacob, you got the four wives, Rachel, the favorite, Leah, Rachel's sister, the two servants who are basically concubines for crazy, messed up Jacob. We've got the 12 sons that we know about and the one daughter, Dinah. From these, we're going to get a whole lot more. Moses records this for us. I'm just going to read through it quickly. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of the Canaanite woman, a little jab in there for that family, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Konath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan, Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamal. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elan, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Aram. That was when he was living with his uncle. Together with his daughter, Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. That is, from the Leah branch of the tree, 33 people. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Hagi, Shuni, Esben, Eri, Erebi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. This is fun. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons from Zilpah. The sons of Rachel, so Jacob's favorite wife by far, 
Joseph and Benjamin, just the two. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, who will play key roles in a couple chapters, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. Mupim and Hupim. How about that? Now, in the last chapter, the brothers, the, the ten main brothers, the scoundrels, they refer back to Benjamin as the boy. Remember how they referred to Joseph when they didn't know it was Joseph as the man in Egypt? And Joseph or Benjamin is the boy. But here we are told that Benjamin, who at this point is only 24 years old, has 10 sons. Can you imagine? 24 years old, 10 sons to be responsible for? We got it easy, don't we? Yeah. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, Shalim. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. All right. So despite all the ridiculous shenanigans of this family, God has been multiplying, greatly growing this family so that they come in in this train of 70 people. Joseph's already there, the rest are coming, and the whole clan of Israel is now inside the borders of Egypt, in the best land that Egypt has, and that will serve as an incubator for the rapid, dramatic multiplication of the nation of Israel. They go in as 70. When they come out 430 years later, how many people do you think there are? Anybody want to make a guess? Nobody? Okay. We don't know. There, there's some tricky passages that people argue about, like how are we to interpret these numbers, but basically anywhere between 30,000 on the very low end and 2.5 million on the high end come out of these 70 people. Now, there are good reasons that I could argue for both the 2.5 million and the 30,000. doesn't matter. The point is, 70 go in, a whole multitude come out 40, 430 years later. Now, speaking of this great multitude... As I was working through stuff this week, I obviously thought of the Toby family reunion, right? So Amy Brandt's grandparents, here's a picture of them. This is in 1994. This is Henry and Matilda Toby. In 1991, they were featured in the National Enquirer. Yes, the National Enquirer. Let's go to the next picture here. Okay, big family reunion. At that point, they have 234 uh, descendants from this one couple. They've got 15 children, 85 grandchildren, and 134 great-grandchildren 
That was back in 1991. Now, in 2019, the numbers were updated to 15 children, 91 grandchildren, 244 great-grandchildren, 34 step-great-grandchildren, for a total of 384 descendants from this one couple. That's right here in Western Ohio. Now, if we go to the, this page here, we got a picture of the giant cake for the giant family, of course. And then there's this caption under the, the wedding picture. It says this, Touching wedding picture shows the couple in 1921. When they wed, all they had was 20 cents and some livestock. A different world than we live in today. What year? 1921. Only a hundred years ago. Now, as amazing as that is, how much more is it? How much more amazing is it what God does in the nation of Israel in that incubator of the land of Goshen? He's doing it all on purpose. He's, in fact, orchestrated this whole famine deal in order to get his family into the right spot at the right time. Now, if we go back to the story, we're going to see that, that Judah is going to play a role here. Now, Judah is the guy who was a real scoundrel when he was young, but God has turned him around over the years. Judah has repented of his sinful early ways. Judah is growing in maturity, and Judah is now risen as the primary leader in the family. He's sent ahead in order to take care of some things because he's the one who can be trusted. Verse 28, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now, I wish we could be there to see how this plays out. It was certainly very emotional. You've got strong, prime of his life, almost king of the world, Joseph. Old, just feeling like he could die at any minute, Jacob. And the two of them are leaning on each other's neck, soaking themselves with tears, weeping with joy for the reunion, sorrow and grief over the lost years, all kinds of other emotions, and they just weep and weep and weep. And then when they're done with the weeping, Jacob says, this is enough. Just let me die. Now, he's not going to die right away. God has more plans for Jacob. But he's like, this, is, this fulfills my life. The reunion, I'm with my son. I last saw him at 17. He was in that fancy robe that I gave him. Now he stands in royal robes as a full-grown man, the governor of Egypt. I can die in peace. My life is good again. Amazing. 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. 
When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. Here's the reason for the conversation. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, Pharaoh has already said this. They can have Goshen, but Jacob's saying, here's how you're going to talk to him. Make sure you don't mess up the plan so that you end up in the place that you're supposed to be in Goshen. And then he ends with, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, when, they, when Joseph threw the big party, he was, still hadn't said who he was. He knew who the brothers were. They didn't know who he was. He throws a big party, giant banquet. He gives all the extra food to Benjamin, treats him real special. Remember, in that party, we had Joseph sitting by himself, probably up on a raised dais, and then you had all the Egyptian courtiers and servants and stuff. They sat together. And then the Israelites, the people of Jacob's family, sat together. And we were told in that passage that the Egyptians didn't want to sit with the Israelites because the Israelites, the Hebrews, were an abomination to the Egyptians. And we thought, how interesting is it that pagan, polytheistic, you know, lots of gods, um, corrupt, worldly Uh, doesn't want anything to do with the one true God, those Egyptians looked at the chosen people of the one true God and they said, no thank you, you're gross, you're unclean, you're unholy, you can't even sit with us at the table. That was a racist racist motivation back then. Our people group is, cho- is good, we're clean, we're chosen by all the gods. You, you claim to be chosen by the one true God, but you are an abomination to us. We don't want anything to do with you. An ethnic division, a religious division. We have the same thing going on here, but now it's a class division. They look at the shepherds and they think they are the lower class. They're not worthy to to live with us. We're going to set them off in this other place. Yeah, for some reason, Pharaoh thought we should give them the greatest place in the land, but they're going to be separate from us because otherwise those dirty, stinky shepherds would pollute us. They'd probably want to marry our women and just, oh, it'd become just terrible. So you got this racist, ethnic thing going at first. Then you got this class thing going. And we see both of those things going today, don't we? We have people who are trying to stoke this racial war in our country and stoke a class war in our country. It's nothing new. It was happening even back in this day. But God is working through all of this. He's using the racist fears. He's, he's using the class warfare in order to set up his people in the best land for the best possible future for them at least for a few generations, until they become slaves themselves. But even that is part of the plan. This whole thing, the Joseph story, the amazing Joseph story, says over and over again that God is the sovereign Lord over everything. His plan is working out no matter what. And he will use the pagan king of Egypt. He will use the racism and the class warfare of Egypt. He will use all of that even a famine, in order to make sure that his plan is working out exactly as he wants it to. I hope that that is a comfort to you. Because some of you have faced hatred by other people. 
If you walk closely with Christ over these next few years, I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to face increased hatred from people because you belong to Jesus. But the sovereign God of the universe will use that hatred for his glory and for your good. I love the song, Sovereign Over Us, and the line, even what the enemy meant for evil, God turns it for our good. Man, that is so evident in the story of Joseph's life. Now, since it's Mother's Day, what I want to do is help us kind of read between the lines a little bit in this story. Ask a few questions of the text and wonder at what God has been up to. I want you to think about those 70 people who went into Egypt, the amazing joy of that reunion between Jacob and his long-lost son Joseph, the earlier joy of the reunion between Joseph and Benjamin, so many tears of joy. And yet, who's missing? Rachel. Mom. She had died decades before. I think it was 24 years. Yep, 24 years earlier, in chapter 35, Rachel had died. Imagine the joy of the reunion and then that little bit of nagging pain in the back. And when the joy calms down and they're trying to go to sleep that night and they think, I miss mom so much today. I wish she could have been here to see this and yet she's not. And some of you, you're feeling that same kind of thing today as we celebrate Mother's Day. You're missing mom. God knows that. He knows what's going on in your heart. We miss it if we just read through the story real fast, but God doesn't miss it. He sees it all. He knows what's going on in there. That hole that's left in your heart is just like the hole that's left in Jacob's and Joseph's and Benjamin's heart, even in this joyful reunion day. Moms, you probably have days where you feel completely overwhelmed with the job that God has given you. The idea of raising these kids, of somehow producing a a healthy brood that becomes reasonable adults that don't completely embarrass you or ruin your family, that is an overwhelming job. And I want you to think about the moms in this story, the ones who are still alive, okay? They just packed up everything they had. They loaded all the kids, maybe their grandkids at this point. They loaded them out of the wagons. They traveled through the desert. They're starting over in a new land. And yet, probably what they want more than anything else is to be able to hit reset on some of their family relationships. All the rivalry, all the anger, all the sin and craziness in that family, that all goes with them to this new land. And they're probably hoping, maybe with a fresh start, we can start over here. We got Reuben, the firstborn, who commits incest with his father's wife in order to try to rise himself up as the leader of the family. Number two, Simeon and Levi. Number three, committed genocide and the premeditated murder of the whole city of Shechem. Number four, Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law who was disguised as a pagan cult prostitute. Your kids will embarrass you and probably shame you, but probably not this bad. All four of those guys come from just Leah. What has Leah had to go through over the years? How does she keep going? God 
is pulling Leah through. Leah, the unwanted one. Remember the trickery of how Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel, and uh, turns out it's Leah. Now he's got to marry Rachel as a second wife, and it makes this whole big, crazy, messed up family. Leah, the one that nobody wanted, has got these four boys that probably nobody wants. And yet God is continuing to work in and through Leah. And that embarrassment and that heartbreak is known by God. And he helps them keep going. And then you got Zilpah and you got Bilhah who are just minor roles in Genesis. And yet they have given birth to four of the sons of Israel. Their names will carry on even to this day, but they're not talked about. Those four boys... We don't have any good stories about them so far. They're just always in the background. They are obviously the least wanted, the least important. Nobody cares about those four guys, it seems. The bitterness that must have grown in them. And now they're they're coming into this new land where hotshot Joseph is back in charge. He's saving the day. Everybody loves Joseph again. And yet these four guys, they're just quiet in the background, doing their thing. All of this stuff is is between the lines of this chapter and the reunion that's happening. For years, these moms have tried to hold out hope that maybe their family will get better. Maybe you guys have felt that. Like, maybe if my kids, if they make it to this age, then things will get better. And then maybe they'll move out, and then they'll give me grandkids, and I can ignore all of the pain that they were because of the grandkids. These moms have had hope and then they knew great fear as they started to starve. And then in this weird heart-twisting way, the one that they least wanted to see, Joseph, ends up being their savior and rescuer. They load everything up and they head to Egypt. I hope, moms, that you can take comfort in this story. That today, that you can put yourself in the shoes of these moms and the trials, the hard things that they've gone through. And you can know that you know so much more of the story than they did. Especially how Jesus fits into all this story. I think about the mercy that Joseph showed them by saving his family. I think about the song that we're going to sing in just a few minutes, His Mercy is More. And I think about James, chapter 2, 13, where in the middle of the verse it says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. And moms, I want you to hear that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yeah, you got to discipline your kids. You got to do all that stuff. But be merciful too. Because God has been merciful to you. That's really the whole thing about the Joseph story. We see this so clearly in 1 Peter 1.3, where the word mercy plays the central role. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We dealt with that a few weeks ago with Easter, but look, look at the word mercy there. According to His great mercy, as great as the mercy of Joseph was to forgive his brothers and to save his family. 
The mercy of our God is so much greater. And moms, if you belong to Jesus, then you can rest in that mercy, knowing that as as tough as the present or the past or the future is, the mercy of God, as 1 Peter calls it, the great mercy of God has rescued you, has caused you to be born again. You are a new creation in Christ And as great as the promises and the faithfulness of God is to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the promises to you are even greater. And the faithfulness of God is just as faithful. So we got the crazy story of Joseph. We got the reunion. We got all the things that are hidden in the background between the lines. We got the mercy of God and all of that. It is my hope, moms, that this will all be an encouragement to you today. Let's pray. Father, thanks for, the, thanks for the moms and the dads and the grandmas and the grandpas and the kids. Thank you for the way that you have built families differently. Great variety of families here. And you're going to be building new families, increasing the, the families that are here. We, we thank you for little Hadley born just a couple days ago. Pray that she would grow healthy and strong and she would come to know you young in life and that She would know the joy of walking in your mercy her whole life. We thank you that her parents love you. They're going to work hard in order to to raise her to know and love you. Lord, I pray that as we get ready to to sing this next song, as we think about the Joseph story, we think about the great mercy that is permeating that whole story, and then just such great mercy of you, calling us, your children, rescuing us, according to your mercy, causing us to be born again in the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, help us to grasp the amazing love and mercy you have for us. And then, especially for the moms, help us to live lives of mercy that reflect that. In Jesus' name, amen.